Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to LC North. Her new book is The Ugly Truth. We talk about how it combines her love of psychology and her fascination with celebrity. Also how much she analysed the commercial hook of the book, what would get people to buy her stories. And we run through how she deals with the karma part of the writing process. When she's thinking things through, how does she cope with it? For me, I don't like to rush that planning stage. So, I mean, I'll only spend about two weeks doing it, in all fairness. So that in those two weeks, I will plan and have written a full synopsis. So I and have it all planned out, ready to start writing. So it can it can feel bad. I don't I'm not someone who likes to sit and watch telly during the day. So if, even if I'm watching a documentary, which I know is going to be really important for research, I'm sitting there feeling very uncomfortable doing it. There's all that and more with Elsie North in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along to the show. It's Writer's Routine, where we take a look through an author's working day. We see how they get stuff done. How some of the most successful writers around some of the biggest bestsellers take their ideas, plan their life, their day, their space to get it down onto the page. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for listening. And this week's episode is brought to you by Plotter. I'm still really excited that for a little while, Plotter are helping to power this show just like they can power your writing. Plotter, very simply, is a writing tool. It does what the title says. It helps you plot. It helps you plan your books the way that you think. It lets you outline faster, organise smarter. It turbocharges your productivity. Now, if you're a visual writer, this is perfect for you because when you open the software, you get a digital corkboard. You can easily swap between the timelines. You lay it out really simply in front of you. You've got your outline, your notes, details on the characters and the places... You can tag all of these to make it easy to skim through and to find what you need. All of it is colour-coded as well, just like it might be on the notebook, but it's on your screen in front of you where you are writing. It's really adaptable and it's really easy to use and work with while you are getting your story down. It allows you to track all of the details of your plot at a scene level and switch, swap, and then use them as you want. And here is my favourite part. If you're having trouble getting stuff into a manageable plot, If you've got that initial idea, we always talk about that on the show, don't we? Where did that initial idea come from? Well, if you have that, but you don't know what to do next, if you just can't place it into a plot, Plotter has more than 30 proven plot templates from some of the best storytellers around just to get you thinking about where this could go, to help kickstart your idea and snap it into life. Plotter helps you spend more time writing and less time worrying about everything else. I think for us writers, we can spend a lot of time faffing about the window dressing, can't we? But Plotter does all the back end. It does the simple stuff so you can focus on getting the words on the page. Now, the best way for you to see what it does and how stunning it looks, how helpful it can be, is by getting to Plotter.com and taking a look around. There's no E in Plotter. While you're there, you can get 10% off the software with this show, which means that for under 20 quid, $22.50, which is about £18, you can get access to this software forever to help you plan and plot your story to make you organise smarter, to make you organise smarter and outline faster. To get that deal, use the code that's in the episode notes of the show. Follow the link go.plotter.com slash routine. Go.plotter, P-L-O-T-T-R dot com slash routine. So this week on the show, we're chatting to LC North. Lauren, LT Lauren, she writes psychological suspense novels all about relationships and family. The Ugly Truth. It's all about Melanie who is trapped and convinced that she's kidnapped 
while her father says that she is a danger and he's doing it for her own safety. The book asks you to decide who is right, what is happening here. You can learn how it was inspired by a crime documentary that she watched and how it combines her love of psychology and celebrity. We talk about why, even though with normally a full day at her disposal, she starts and finishes early. Uh, You can hear why her writing life is organised, as opposed to other stuff in her life that really isn't. We talk through why her planning process is a bit like colour by numbers. And there's a brilliant bit when we analyse the commercial hook. I know it seems sometimes a bit strange and blunt to analyse story writing as book selling, but that's a big part of it. If you want to become a full-time writer, if you want to make this what you do, you do need to think about where it will sit in the shelves, what will make people pick this up and carry on reading. And there's a brilliant chat with Elsie North all about how she analysed that commercial hook. That's on the way, and we get into it, as we always do, with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. I have got directly in front of me a huge monitor on my desk. Um, and it makes things a bit bigger for my poor eyes. Um, behind that, I've got a lovely window, but it's got mottled glass, so I can't actually see out of it, so there's nothing distracting there. Um, to my left, I've got a big wall with lots of post-its on it uh, where I plot out my books, which I'm sure we'll get to later. I've also got another post-it which reads... Even when it's not fun, it's fun. It's sort of a little motivational thing to remind myself that I'm sat at my desk at five o'clock in the morning for a reason. Um, and then to my other side, I've got a piece of artwork um, by an artist called Hans Paus, which I inherited from my dad when he passed away because it was his favourite. And so I really liked it, popped it on my wall as well. So that is my desk and that's what's in front of me. Uh, just take a look at the post-it notes for me. I don't want you to give too much away, but like, could you give us a glimpse on maybe what is written on one? Would, would it make any sense to us at all? Oh, um, well, I can't really tell you anything about this book yet because it's the book of 2025. So it's a long way off. But what I can say is that I love colour coordinating my posters. So it's very colourful at the moment. And I've got a different colour for different characters and different timelines and different media because I write in a mixed media. Like there's different things for um, transcripts and interviews and things. So it's all looking very colourful at the moment. I've often wondered, so that's that's fairly organised as writers go. I've spoken to a lot of them and not that many have post-it note plot points, let alone colour-coded post-it note plot points. Is that something that we would see across everything that you do? So in, in uh, other jobs and in a previous life, maybe, uh, do you tend to be quite organised with everything? Well, I think I am, but my husband will tell you that I'm really disorganised. So if you open up a drawer that I'm in charge of, you will find it to be completely chaotic and messy. Although I will tell you, I can find what I'm looking for in that drawer, but I'm probably the only one. Um, But I am very organised when it comes to the kids and where they need to be and where they are going most of the time. I rarely drop the ball with clubs and activities. And definitely with my writing, I'm very organised and I do love a good plan. At, at what point does the the plan come into it for you? Before you sit down and start typing away, will you be plotting with your post-it notes? Will you be eyeing up colour co- uh, color coordination and where things need to go even at that stage? Yeah, absolutely. I won't write a single word until I am completely convinced that I've got a full story here. Um, I am quite strategic in that way. I won't write the book at all until I know it's got a commercial hook. So before I even start plotting with the um, post-its, I'm thinking about how I'm going to sell this book to my agent and my publisher and how I'm going to excite them about it. And unless I can get that hook and that really exciting, enticing paragraph about what the book's about, I'm not going to take it any further than that. So that's my first thing. And then, yes, I move on to my post-its. And when I feel like I can see the whole book then I will move that colour coordination to Scrivener and I will plot it in the binder down the left-hand side exactly the same colours. I will keep it on my wall as well because I find it very motivational up there. And then I just start, it's almost like colour by numbers, I start filling in the blanks. The idea of that commercial hook is interesting. I've never really spoken to anyone who's kind of analysed it and described it like that before. At what point does that tend to come? So we'll get to 
the idea for the new book, The Ugly Truth, in in a little while. But do you find yourself having an idea for a book, a general idea, and then you've got to work on that and whittle it down and whittle it down into something small and presentable almost? Yeah, I think so. I think I have sort of a general um, seedling of a question or an idea, as you say. And from that point, um, in order to make sure I know it's something that I can work on that's going to sell, I then start thinking about how it's going to sit in an elevator pitch. Um, and I do that because um, from experience, I've been in this game a little while now, um, it's really easy to have a really um, great idea that you think is really exciting and to run with it. And then you actually realise quite way down the line that it isn't commercially viable and hasn't quite got this exciting hook it needs and hooks are so important at the moment you know every author I speak to there's very much a sense of isn't it hard out there with retailers isn't it just really hard and competitive so I'm trying to use my time as best I can and be as strategic as I can in in thinking things through like that and and I still love it don't get me wrong I'm not going to write a book that I don't absolutely love but I am maybe taking an extra step first. You mentioned that because you've been in the game a, a little while, you've you've learned this. What have you learned that your hook needs to be? What does it need to have? Um, I think for me, the hook has to be um, just a couple of sentences that everyone is going to turn around like, oh, yeah, I get exactly what you're doing. Can't wait to read it. So it just... A hook isn't, for me, the enticing strap line on, on, the, on the front of the book. When I do a lot of mentoring with authors, I see that they use sort of a strap line almost in their agent letters. And I sort of talk to them about how we can develop that into something a bit sturdier so that the agent can then speak to an editor and say, this is what the book's about. And just in a few lines, get everyone excited about it. So just to try and make it as easy as possible for everyone to see what I'm doing. Let me plop you back in your writing space. So <clears throat> how, how how does your desk look? We've chatted that you're quite orderly with everything around you. What would I find on your desk? Is it notebooks? Um, like are you writing on a laptop? Is uh, You mentioned the big screen, didn't you? Just r- run us through a bit of the desk action. Yeah, so I've got a laptop to my left um, that's connected to my monitor as well. So I've got two screens. I've got a portable um, keyboard and a portable mouse. Um, and I've got um, lots of uh, wrist rests as well, trying to sort out my strain from all my typing. Um, I, I've just recently sorted my desk out so I don't have anything else on it. All my pens are in a very special pen drawer to my right. <laughs> I love my pen and post-it drawer only. Um, and yeah, lots of lamps. So I, I've got two lamps, in fact. One is just like a nice light and the other one's quite an extreme bright light. So when I'm typing things up, I can see it really easily. And... Uh- is that the only space that you find yourself writing with? I sometimes chat to authors who will take themselves away in a fit of peak and go and write in the kitchen or in a coffee shop. How does that work with you? Absolutely. I'm always moving around. I think that really helps me stay motivated. I think it's, it's hard when you're doing quite long days to stay in the same space all the time. So I have a gym membership at my local gym, which has a really nice cafe. It's almost like a country club, really, which is hideously expensive, but I am there every day, so I don't mind paying the money. Um, And I work up there for a couple of hours most mornings. And then, yeah, I'm on the sofa with the dog next to me a lot of the time as well, typing. So, yeah, I'm definitely a mover arounder. Do you find that where you write can influence what you write? Like, I don't know if this is clutching onto a straw that isn't there, but do you find that the way you work is 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 different when you are maybe on the sofa with the dog or when you're at the gym cafe? That's a really good question, and I feel like the answer should be yes, but it's actually no. Um, I also write in the car um, while I'm waiting for my daughter to have her horse riding lesson. I'm writing in a trampoline park while my kids are playing. I, it doesn't really matter. I'm just... I got the ability now through lockdown, I think, to just focus on whatever time I've got, wherever I am, and just throw myself into the story. And I listen to um, like Brain FM, which is this concentration music app, which um, if I am feeling a bit distracted, I'll put it on. And then I'm just, I'm away. I'm there in my story. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, it's interesting that you mentioned the app. I speak spoke to a few authors recently who talk about the cues that you need to write almost 
something that when you hear it or when you smell the candle, perhaps it lets you know that, right, this is this is work time for you. Do, do you have you figured out anything else that just lets you get into that frame of of work, perhaps? Oh, no, I don't think so. I try very hard not to have any kind of routine in that sense because it very quickly when I've been in that situation in the past and something isn't right, I'll find myself in a bit of a flap about them not being able to write. And I just, if I've only got 10 minutes and that's what I've gotten, so I try very hard not to have any kind of crux, if you like. But yeah, the, the brain FM music, the concentration music, I think I, I don't put it on all the time. Sometimes I listen, I'm in silence and sometimes I listen to it. But it's just, something on in the background for if I am feeling a bit distracted. How does it help? What does it do, do you find? Well, it's just this weird beat music. Like, I don't know, they've done some sort of science behind it. Like, there's no, um, you can't sing along, you can't hum along. It's just sort of almost blocks out the world. I've got these beautiful Bose um, headphones and it just, the rest of the world dies away and it's just me and my writing that way. So I like to start my day really early. Um, I'm normally awake about five and I'm at my desk by 10 past five. I'll have a big um, pot of decaf coffee and we'll write for about two to two and a half hours. The children are sort of getting up around me at that point, but they're quite old now. They're they're sort of almost teens, so they sort themselves out. Um, And then about eight o'clock, I will um, throw my gym kit on and I'll take my laptop with me up to the gym, which is only 10 minutes away for me. And I will write again there then for a couple of more hours and I'll then do the gym class, which is normally about 10.40. And then it's shower and change and a quick break where I normally will take the dog for a walk or have a bite to eat. And then I'm back at my desk by 12.30, 1 o'clock. And I work until 5, normally moving around the house if I get a bit bored and um, uncomfortable. And then the kids come home about 5.30. So then 5.30 is when I absolutely stop and have to cook dinner and be mum, basically. So it's a long day. I think if I'm on a deadline, I will come back to it again after I've cooked dinner. Uh, but I start early and go to bed early. So that's pretty much every single day. And if, if that's a day I'm having, then that is an ideal day for me. I absolutely love those days so much when there's not anything else in the works. For someone who said that they don't like to have writing routines, that does sound like quite a solid writing routine. Yes, it is. But if it's the school holidays and I have to change the routine, that's absolutely fine. I can do that. I can write anywhere. Um, But yeah, I do really enjoy that first early morning part of my day because there aren't emails coming in. There aren't people on social media to talk to me. Um, No one else is around. The dog isn't even getting up at that point. So that is a really great um, block of time for me where I really feel like I get a lot done. The early morning seems like slightly unnecessary as you've got a a full day of writing ahead of you. You're breaking a few times to go to the gym to walk your dog. You, you, You do have hefty chunks in the morning and the afternoon to get writing. How have you settled upon waking up at five o'clock to get it done what why why is that something that you're still keen on I don't know I think it's just my natural body clock um so that's the time I generally will wake up I don't ever set an alarm I I can't remember the last time I set an alarm um so it's just when I naturally wake up and I think I've fallen into the routine now so I do go to bed by about 9 9 30 most nights so I then have had my full night's sleep and I'm waking up again at five so it's a bit of a vicious circle I suppose um I yeah I, I do lie in sometimes I guess if I've not got a lot of work on but even then I'm wide awake and would rather be up I think and it's interesting that you kind of you go to the gym and, and take your stuff with you and then you come home and you're writing all over the place. We discussed earlier uh, that you are slightly parapetetic, parapet, para, you know, you move around when you work. <laughs> um, what, what kind of calls to you and says, OK, now it's time to get up and go somewhere else? Normally, I will get cross with myself because instead of writing, I'll have spent 20 minutes down a rabbit hole of Twitter or Instagram or Facebook Reels, which is my big go to. And I'll go back to my page and realise that so much time has gone by and I've not written anything. And I get quite cross with myself about it. Um, And that's when I think, right, well, I need to have a break and I need another cup of coffee and I need to move. And then in my new place, I kind of feel like I'm back to work again, I guess. 
And be- that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And because you do write quite a lot through the day and you're someone that has figured out that you like to wake up early to do this, I, I wonder how much you've you've kind of studied and paid attention to the way that you the way that your work tends to flow. Like when you sit down to start writing at ten past five, are you good at making it instantly come on? Do you need a few hours to warm up? How does it work? How does your energy and mood change as we wind through the day? Um, I definitely peak early and sort of the afternoons are never as productive as the mornings. Um, So I like to tick off. um, I'll often set a little post-it for myself with just um, four lots of the word 500, if you like, or the number 500. Um, And so that's 2000 words. And then I just tick off every time I've done 500. And normally by lunchtime, I'll have done three. And then the whole afternoon I'll spend doing that fourth block of 500 um so yeah i definitely drop down as the day goes on but yeah i don't have any trouble warming up and throwing myself in i think because i do it every day i work at the weekends as well there isn't sort of a break where i think i don't even know where i am at with this book and because it's so planned even if i'm not sure i can just go to the next place on the plan and i can see exactly what's supposed to be in this scene and then i can just throw myself in are you so are you working seven days a week uh, I am at the moment, yeah. And that's... <laughs> it's a lot. It is a lot at the moment. It's a really busy time for me. So we're in March. We're just about to hit March, aren't we? So yeah, it's really busy. I've got a book coming out in March and then a couple more books coming out in May and July. So yeah, it's busy, but I love it. You know, you're writing, uh, you're getting a first draft done in almost seven weeks if you're writing every day, which is relentless, 14,000 words a week. How... um. Like, do you give yourself, uh, how do you chart the way that your energy moves through the year, I guess? I mean, surely you can't, you know, finish one draft and then immediately start something else and get back into the same hectic work schedule. That must be draining. How do you uh, work that through the year? It's really intense at the moment and it doesn't, it won't stay like this. I'm having an intense time. Um, But the plotting, for instance, the planning stage, that's very, very much more relaxed. There's lots of reading, lots of watching things, lots of just staring at a wall with post-its on it and lots of dog walks. And that, that sort of is more of a relaxed time for me. And then, yeah, the first draft is quite an intense. So three months it will take me to write out a first draft and then edit it. It's quite a messy first draft so um, because obviously I write quite quickly. So then I'll read back through it and scribble all over it and um, sharpen it. And then, yeah, so that's about three months. So, yeah, and then I will have a break. I had a break the other week, actually, thinking, gosh, I really need a break. So I took a week off and I was just so bored. I just love writing. It's all I want to do. So, um, yeah, it is intense, but I don't know what else I'd do otherwise. Define what makes a messy first draft oh so I think I've heard other authors on your podcast say this but there's lots of x's so I might or put in capitals describe this house I mean I've, I'm not very I, I'm not a very fancy person so if someone lives in a really rich house I'm like describe and then I'll, I'll go in later um, on the next draft and go on YouTube and find someone's gorgeous house and then describe it from there or look on right move but I don't always stop to do that kind of research and think about what description is needed in that scene at the time of the first draft, I will often come back to it. So yeah, or if I'm not quite sure how someone's moving around a room, I might just put XXX there and then I'll come back to it and roll my eyes on the second draft thinking, why have I left that? (laughs) So when I write or try to write fiction, I get quite you know, fixated on working from A to B and like leaving no stone unturned. And I'm sure that's what many people who just start off do. How long did it take you to get to the point where you could just say, uh, you know, XXX, fill in later, describe this house in a bit? I'm, I'm not sure. I feel like I've been doing the same routine for quite a while. So I don't write in um, a linear fashion. I think since Scrivener came into my life, which is probably about... Quite, quite early on. So I think maybe my second psychological suspense, I think I moved to Scrivener. And because all the scenes are so beautifully charted down on the left-hand side and 
I had to rewrite that second psychological suspense very quickly. I then, I learned to just jump ahead. So um, for context, the second book in my um, two book deal um, for my first books was rejected. And I had to very quickly supply them with something else. So we weren't out of schedule. Um, And so that's how I learned to write really quickly. And from there, I think I've just carried on doing it. It's amazing that you're so busy. And and I often wonder when I speak to uh, people like that who are quite frantic, but give themselves like a few days off or here and there. You were speaking about the planning stage when you are fine to, you know, read a bit. I'll take a dog for a walk and go and think. I'll watch a bit. Like I work freelance and it's a bit like that too, as in my time is either feast or famine. I'm relentlessly busy or I've got nothing on. And I can, I'm never, I can never quite consolidate the guilt of when I'm doing nothing. How do you find the moments when you are maybe going a bit more leisurely, when you are thinking things over, how do you deal with that knowing that you're not frantically typing at the keyboard? Are you, are you okay with being able to split your time up like this? Uh, yeah, I think I have to be because you can't, for me, I don't like to rush that planning stage. So, I mean, I'll only spend about two weeks doing it in all fairness. So that in those two weeks, I will plan and have written a full synopsis. So I, and have it all planned out, ready to start writing. So it can, it can feel bad. I don't, I'm not someone who likes to sit and watch telly during the day. So if, even if I'm watching a documentary, which I know is going to be really important for research, I'm sitting there feeling very uncomfortable doing it. Um, but I, yeah, I, I feel the same as you, quite a lot of guilt that I'm not at my desk writing, but it is a different part of the process, but it's just still as important, if not probably one of the most important things you can do. At the start of every day, how do you know what you're working on that day? What what the 2,000 words need to be? Oh, well, I'll just look at what's next on my plan and I'll start where I've left off. And then towards the middle of the day, I'm struggling to get my words down. Then I just jump ahead to a really exciting bit of dialogue or a scene that I think I'm going to want to write at that point. And then the next day when I'm a bit fresher, I'll go back to wherever I ditched it before and then go again from there and then jump ahead again. And then by the time I'm at about 58,000 words, there's nowhere to jump ahead to. So I just have to persevere. <laughs> um, what about so when the kids come home about five thirty or so when you when you're in as you said full mum mode? How good are you at not thinking about the book? You spent all day with this thing. You you know you are relentlessly at it. Two thousand words, hopefully through the day. How good are you at switching off when they come home? Well, no, not great. In fact, I did burn the dinner last night. In fact, I was still working. Um, I think the problem is as well, once the words are done, there's other things that need to be doing. You know, you have to keep on top of social media and I have to reply to emails. Um, and I run my own podcast as well and um, with some friends and that takes up time. So even when the words are done, there's other admin things I, I really have to keep on top of. And so often maybe at about 5, 5.30, that's when I think, oh, I need to do all these things and reply to all these emails I've had today um so i'm not very good at switching off but luckily for me the children like to have that first hour where they just really um relax they don't want to talk to me really they go to their rooms and they have a really great hour where they're just doing whatever they want to do and then at 6 30 we sit down for dinner as long as i haven't burnt it and that's when we come together really so 6 30 is at the absolute time I, I i am ready to switch off then um, writing on Scrivener, what uh, what font do you use? We get very into fonts at the moment. I know. I listen to people and I think, gosh, I wish I had an exciting font, but I am Times New Roman, which feels like the most boring. Um, but actually saying that, because I um, I write in um, different formats of media, so text messages and newspaper articles a lot, um, I have been mixing it up a little bit and will have maybe – Ariel or Calibri so again not the most exciting ones either but yeah I just think it's I try not to get too caught up on the the format or the um, font because that's all going to get changed down the line anyway A lot can happen in three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll be back with LC North in just a second. Thanks so much to Plotter, who are powering the show for the next little while. You can get 10% off their brilliant software that helps you plot, plan, track, do everything in the back end of your story so simply. It just lets you get down to the writing. To get 10% off, which means that for under £20, you can get the software. Go.plotter.com slash routine. Go.plotter, without the E, dot com slash routine. Now, if you would like to support this show, if you'd like to power this show, I guess, you can help us out at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. I know it's a lot of links, but for pledging becoming a backer of this podcast over there, you help us carry on. You help us keep bringing you these shows, these podcasts as often as we can with the best authors around. And it doesn't take a lot. I know times are tight. For just a couple of quid, a few dollars a month, you can help us carry on. And for that, you get our eternal thanks, obviously. You get bonus content. There is merch and there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show. So if you're enjoying what we do, if we've helped you along the way if you've picked up a few tips and tricks from the best authors around and you can help us out for helping you out by backing the show and pledging to support us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine let's get back to it with lc north then chatting about her new book the ugly truth it's all about melanie who is trapped and convinced that she's kidnapped whereas her father says that she's a danger and he's only doing it for her safety the book asks you to decide who is right. Now, in this half, we chat through the book. Also, why she's filled she's lived her life with Britney Spears and how that played a huge part in the story. And we get back into it with how she gets to know the characters well enough, but she's writing non-linearly. It's not one scene after another. So how does she understand them enough to be able to fly around the story and still make them accurate and authentic. Well, I'm a bit like Alison Stockham. She was on your podcast, uh, I think, last month with uh, talking about the cuckoo sister, and it was such a great interview. And she said, I was going, mm-hmm, yes, mm-hmm, as I was in the gym listening, because she was like, I don't really know who my characters are until the first draft's finished. And I really, I really felt that. I think I'm normally about three quarters of the way through when I realise the motivations for my characters. And at that point, I'll start adding it in. And then at, on the next draft, I have to go back and like work it all the way through again. So I, yeah, I think that the other side of it is jumping ahead is that I've planned the book to such an extent that I know exactly what's going to happen and at what point and how they're going to feel at those times. So that's another way that I get to know the characters just in the planning stage. But yeah, I, I feel often like I have these light bulb moments at 70,000 words. I'm like, oh, that's why she's done it. And I'm, I'm a surprise at everyone else and I have to go back and make sure it all fits. You are a few books down now. Um, at the start, you, you spoke earlier about the second novel, I think it was, that, that got rejected. How, how, do you, um, like, how did you deal with that back then? How did you deal with <clears throat> excuse me, the doubt of what you were writing? Because you're so green in your career, wondering, hang on, is, the, is this good enough? How did you push on? Well, it was really hard and it gave me a huge knock in confidence, which came after having had a huge boost because I just got my first publishing deal. Um, It does massively knock you. And at any stage in your career, if you get any kind of rejection, it really knocks you. Um, And I'm certainly not immune to that now. But I think what it taught me a valuable lesson in that because I was so green, as you say, I 
thought that my job was to go away and write a second book and supply it to my editor. And what I hadn't really realized is that once you sign a contract, you are in a relationship with them and you should be working together a lot more closely. So now I will always make sure that they're really comfortable with the idea and then I'll send them the first 10,000 words and make sure they're happy with that. And then we go from there. Um, so I'm a, I'm a lot more understanding that it's a relationship. Um, but at the time, yeah, it really knocked me. But I think I coped by throwing myself into writing this other book because I really felt I had this massive deadline and had to sort of supply them with another book. I look back now and think, oh, I probably could have just waited another year if I'd wanted to because they'd have pushed it back. But I really didn't want to get out of the book a year when I was only just on it. I'm interested in how you plan so efficiently. So I guess let's do this in the eye of the new novel, which is The Ugly Truth. Um, We spoke earlier on about you getting down to the the commercial hook of a story, and I want to find out how you got there. So just as as much as you can remember, try and describe the first moment that the, the general idea for what this book was came into your head before you had even whittled it down to a couple of sentences as, as a pitch yeah absolutely so the first thing that happened for me was that i watched a documentary called the dubai princess by um on bbc panorama and that really caught my attention and it put, planted a seed in my head and that was back i think at the start of 2021 um, and I sort of let it sit with me because I was in the process of just finishing writing a book. But I was sort of, I hadn't thought, oh, well, I'll write a book about this situation, but I'll just um, wait. And I just, it was just sitting there. I was very interested in it. And I was talking to the kids about it. So for those who don't know, um, uh, Princess Latifah um, was the, is the Dubai princess. And in 2021, in uh, early 2021, she claimed through secret videos that she was being held prisoner by her father, um, who was the prime minister of the UAE. Um, And he was very much like, no, it's absolute rubbish. She's absolutely fine. Just ignore her. Um, So you had this huge public outcry with people sort of being like, well, what's really going on here? And it really resonated with me that there was a powerful man and a woman and whose voices we were listening to. Um, And then around the same time, there was a huge movement for Britney Spears and the Free Britney movement. And that was really playing in my mind because I'm coming up to turning 40 this year. And it really, my whole childhood and adolescence was sort of watching Britney Spears um, become this megastar and then watching her crumble and watching her try and build herself back up. So I feel like I've lived my life with her, if you like, I think in the same way a lot of people my age do. Um, And then I was in a really fortunate position that I'd finished my fourth psychological suspense very early and had quite a bit of time to sort of play with a new idea without feeling under any pressure to deliver anything. So I sat at my kitchen table with some post-its and it was using Julie Cohen's post-it method. She taught, she teaches this great course on how to use post-its to plan, which I'd recommend to anyone just for a bit of fun, really. Um, And she, what she recommends doing is you just sort of slam ideas down to you just scribble one word or something on this place and just slam it down and and by the time uh, 10 minutes later I, I sort of had a couple of ideas but it was this idea of a, a Britain's most famous celebrity um disappearing from the public eye and then claiming months later that she's been held prisoner immediately it was the concept of the hashtags whose side do you want and then I immediately knew their names and it was hashtag save Melanie or hashtag help Peter and it became like that was probably one of the first things I put down and from there it it sort of built from there so and I had the title as well immediately sort of within the first five minutes it's one of those times where and I have since then written a book that was really hard to write but The Ugly Truth was one of these books where I think it just connected with me in this book that I really wanted to write and capture something about our society in it. And it just, it was so easy. It was one of those lovely books where the idea was there and then the words were there. And it was just a magical experience, which is awful because I know there's going to be people listening who are just really struggling. And just to know that the one I wrote after that was horrendous. <laughs> um, uh so then what happened next? So you've got this idea that you know who you want it to be about. And again, this might be quite hard because 
if it did, if it was all just there for you. But what are you asking yourself? What are you thinking about at the stage when you are properly plotting it out before you've even written a word of what became the ugly truth? Uh, how are you weaving a plot? What are you asking yourself to get a plot out of the idea of famous celebrity claims that she is being kidnapped? Her father says that, no, she's not. Well, I think I really loved the idea of a documentary. I love celebrity documentaries myself. And I really wanted to capture something about that in the story. And I think I knew very early on the idea that the story would have almost um, a Netflix transcript where we would have everyone that uh, Melanie ever knew telling sort of their side of the story of how she became so famous and thrust into the spotlight at the age of 15. And I sort of picked out a few ideas for different ages where things would happen to her. And it's not based on any particular celebrity. It's very fictionalised. But there are certain events that you might think, oh, gosh, that similar thing happened to Cheryl Cole, for instance. Um, and it just it represents, I think, how we have seen certain celebrities in our society sort of rise to fame and, and fall off the pedestal or be knocked off, in fact, uh, by the media. Um, so I wanted to really catch that in a document so I knew straight away that I was going to write it in a mixed media epistolary format. Um, and once I sort of decided to do it that way, it was just so freeing to think that I could have some real fun with it and it, it wouldn't be um, in sort of the same chapter format. So it was, it was really great fun to think about how what else I could throw in there with blog posts and Twitter um, and just really try and capture something about how the world we basically live on our phones so much don't we so we scroll tap and swipe through life and so i really want to try and capture that in a book when you're stepping outside of your comfort zone to an extent as an author by not writing how most other people do in this in a very linear prose style when you are using uh, mixed media um as you said, freeing, liberating, gives you a lot of opportunity to do stuff you wouldn't normally get to do. How challenging was it at times, though, to uh, keep in mind what story you are writing as you're playing it out through their various methods? Um, it wasn't so much challenging, more the fact that I really had no idea if what I was writing was ever going to even be a book, if it was ever going to um, get a publishing deal. I remember very clearly uh, speaking to my, I've got three really close writing friends and we'd be to read each other's work. And I remember saying to them about the idea and I, I, I emailed it to them and I said, look, this is either really terrible and it's never going to see the light of day or I've got something and, and I genuinely didn't know which it was just that I'd really enjoyed writing it and I wrote it really quickly I think yeah, four weeks I think was what it took me to write um, The Ugly Truth first draft and that was just because that well two things I happened to have four weeks where there was no holidays from the kids or anything and it just it, it really was the most exciting thing I'd ever written so I was so I just couldn't wait to write it every day and uh, they got back to me quite quickly my friends who were really lovely and said no no don't worry this is something so then I sent it to my agent and we went from there I've spoken to other authors who are quite thorough planners and plotters like you are who tend to follow uh, a narrative arc throughout their books be it the, the, the hero's journey or something traditional like that um when you're writing and well before you've even started typing away and you are plotting how much are you uh kind of working through a, a, a tried and tested method of planning and where your story is going to go from a to b to c and how much are you mixing it up and keeping it exciting um, well i i don't follow any kind of um standard uh, format and in fact I bought Save the Cat um, the book about um, how to plot a successful thriller um, thinking gosh everyone's talking about this book I better get it and I started reading it I was like oh it almost overwhelmed me this concept of the beat sheets and hitting these moments throughout the story and I just thought no I don't want to even think about it I'm just going to do what I do which is just plotting out a book and trying to make it what I want it to be and make it a book that I want to read. And I'll put some reveals in where I want them to be and hope that it works. And it, and it doesn't always, you know, that's why you have an editor and, and we work together on it. But yeah, I try very hard not to think about any kind of journey or hero's journey. I just try and capture the story that I want to write, if that makes sense. 
we spoke earlier on uh, how you agree with Alison Stockham, who was a guest on the show at the start of February, um, that you, you know who your character is after you've kind of finished that first draft. When you were uh, planning and originally imagining uh, Melanie and, and Peter before you even start typing away, how much did they change when you went back to edit through your second draft? Um, they didn't change at all, I don't think. I had a real sense immediately that Melanie Lang was going to be quite misunderstood. Um, she was She's actually quite a private person and she didn't really crave this attention, but they, the media just couldn't leave her alone, really. Um, so she, she didn't change that much at all. And I don't even think Sir Peter did as well. He was He's a billionaire. Um, I talk about them like they're real, don't I? Sorry, is that really weird? So everyone does. You're okay. Um, so Peter's this billionaire hotel tycoon, business tycoon. Um, yeah, I don't think they changed very much at all. I think I um, once I planned it out and I could see who they were, it was almost more the supporting cast of who they had around them that, that probably changed a lot more with me trying to find the best way to capture their stories through other people's voices. So I think the, the one character that changed the most, especially in the structural edit, was Melanie has a sister, Zara Lang, and her story came out a lot more in the structural edit. Well, talking about Melanie then, I think it must be tough when they have been inspired in part by uh, cases that you've read about and documentaries that you've seen, and the only way we are almost reading about Melanie is through videos that she's posting and stuff that she that you're reading about online to her. It must be quite difficult for you to get an idea of who she is as a well-rounded person. What kind of questions were you asking yourself? How were you finding out who she was before you started writing, if she didn't change much? Well, I think um, what's um, interesting about The Ugly Truth and what I think some readers have found frustrating, actually my daughter's reading it right now, and she's like, I really want to hear from Melanie. But you don't actually hear from her directly until about three quarters of the way through the book. And before that, you're just being told how everyone else's views about her. And there are some conflicting viewpoints. And so as you're reading it, you're always thinking, whose side are you on with her? Um, and I just, I really wanted to... Um, demonstrate that we are told how people are and you sort of just accept it but actually there's so many more sides to a story and you know the, how the media portrays things isn't necessarily how it how it really is in real life you know as an example one of the stories in the ugly truth was about um melanie having this big fight with her boyfriend and looking really angry as they were walking down the street in these photos and actually what happened that day is that they were just walking down the street trying to go to the shop and um some photographers had surrounded them and were just put, throwing um shoving photos uh cameras in their faces and heckling them and then they got quite upset and frustrated and that's the money shot the photo of them looking angry because then they can sell a story saying look the couple are arguing when that isn't actually what happened so uh, that's an example of of how it differs between what people see and what's true you're writing genre fiction and we've spoke about how it's not perfect in the first draft. You might even not write whole passages and kind of come back to fill in descriptions and change words. How much do you think about the actual words on the page, uh, whether they are perfect for the genre, whether they're the right length, the right uh, pace? How much are you thinking about that side of writing? Um, I don't think I um, consciously think about it very much. I think when I look back, I realise that I write sentences that vary in length constantly and I think that that I read some of that, that's quite a, a good way to keep people's attention so some words some sentences have two words in and some have 20 and and having that variation I think helps read the reading experience but I don't think about it in any conscious way I just I write what comes out of my head and then on the next draft my polish a sentence if I'm not happy with how it's sounding um, but I don't really think about the genre and what words fit that at all. I just try and write the story, which is in my head. I think like a lot of authors, for me, it's a film that's running and it's my job to describe what I'm seeing um, in that film in my head as best I can. You've written psychological thriller before, like this one, and you studied psychology at uni. I guess you're coming at the genre at a, maybe a slightly different angle than many other writers who dabble in it. 
how do you think one has affected the other? Yeah, I, I get asked a lot about my psychology degree and I feel a bit like a fraud, to be honest. <laughs> it was 20 years ago and it was a three-year course and we really just scratched the surface of um, what it is, what psychology even is and behaviours and brain chemistry. And I loved it so much. But the reason I studied psychology was because I'm just so fascinated by human behaviour. And so I think if I'd studied it or not, I'd be exactly where I am today. And I, I don't know necessarily that my degree has helped me in any particular way in understanding um, human behaviour, because like I said, it was really only a basic course. And there are so many authors out there who are actual doctors in psychology who are probably much more qualified to talk about the psychology of writing and their characters than I am. <laughs> okay. Well evaded, I would say. Well sidestepped. <laughs> I just don't want to like claim credit for something that is so uh, was 20 years ago. <laughs> um, listen, you're, I don't know, what are you kind of, one, two, three, four, five. Is this your seventh book now? Um, I, I honestly am not sure which number it is because I've written in another genre as well. But yeah, that sounds about right. So yeah, we'll say seven. Along the way, what have you learned about how you work best, about what you're good at writing, maybe what you still need to work on at writing? I just wonder how much you've analysed that side of things. Yeah, I try and think about that a lot because I think I um, always am looking for ways I can grow as an author. And I read um, an amazing book by Fiona Cummings called Into the Dark recently. And her descriptions of um, the house and the location was so beautiful. And I think I came away from that thinking, yeah, I really need to work on my descriptions I think I, I get very caught up in the emotion of my characters and the um, story itself that I don't necessarily paint the best play, uh, sort of place if you like and I think I could definitely work on that I think that's what I'm going to take forward for my next book um, so yeah I'm always thinking about it and, and what what I do well and where I can develop Thank you so much to Lauren L.C. North for coming on the show. That new book is The Ugly Truth. You can get a copy right now. Next week, we are with Dania Kakavka chatting through her new book, Notes on an Execution. If you've been past a bookshop in the UK for like the last few months, you won't have missed this book. It is front and centre in all of the windows. We are back with Dania next week on the show. In the meantime, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine and make the most of the discount code for the brilliant software plotter. Get to go.plotter.com forward slash routine. And I will see you next week with Dania Kakavka. Until then, bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.